friends. Welcome back to another edition of the Insurance Requirements Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Correll. Today, we welcome Carrie Ann Nadeau, CEO of Ometry to the Studio. Today's episode turned into something different than what we've typically done. Instead of diving into the insurance buying experience of our guest, today we focus on a singular topic. While we start off discussing Ometry's mission, we then spend most of our time discussing auto insurance. Things like how Ometry is changing the way risk is measured, how we can use data to make routes safer, and how auto insurance is due for a correction and how rates are determined. Thanks for listening, and now, on to the show. Carrie-Anne Nadeau, thank you so much for joining me today on the Insurance Requirements Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And so you are the founder and CEO of Ometry. Yep, that's right. Awesome. Love, love to jump in and tell you a little bit more about Ometry. I'm going to assume your, your audience maybe doesn't have a lot of background on me. Yeah. So yeah, for, for the listeners out there not familiar, go ahead and give us a tour. Sure. Yeah. So again, Carrie Ann, nice to meet everybody. My background, I come from way outside of the insurance industry, but somehow find myself back in insurance about three years ago. I built a business called Ometry that builds off of some research that I had done in my earlier career about where it's unsafe to drive. So we take data from state and local governments. We build these really cool machine learning models that predict what's the probability of a crash on every single road. And we think that's really powerful information because we aim to put this back into the hands of customers who can drive with greater awareness or think about you know, maybe changing their routes if they're driving in a really exposed area. We think people should have the ability to benefit from their own data and give them insights that hopefully help them navigate the world more safely. And also we're working to get these factors filed as a rate because we believe fundamentally that the way auto insurance is priced today is really problematic, particularly for people that have been qualified for insurance because they live in a risky zip code or you know, they may have a lower financial credit score or they may have a low income. For whatever reason, the models have been built to sort of disadvantage and overprice a lot of these folks. So by deprioritizing who someone is and prioritizing more information about where it's safe to drive and whether that driver is in the unsafe space and even whether they're speeding or hard braking at like the wrong place at the wrong time, we think those factors are more important criteria on which we can rate and price customers. So we're working to essentially completely flip all of auto insurance underwriting and pricing on its head, which is uh, definitely a hard task, definitely a big challenge. But I think the team at Ometry is really in it for the long haul, really excited about the potential impact that we can have both in insurance and on people's lives. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. So you, you touched on the, the different kind of data that you focus on with Ometry. How do you, how do you gather that data? Where is it coming from? Yeah, you got to knock on doors in my business. We go to state and local government agencies. We find Nancy and Jim and Yvonne and 
Stephen and these wonderful public servants who frankly have been sitting on gold mines worth of data. In New York State, for example, we've got 10 years, 12 years worth of data on traffic crashes going back, all geolocated and timestamped. In Texas, where you're from, we're getting about 40,000 crashes every single month reported wow. to us. Yeah, it's a lot. So we look at our, you know, uh, MGAs and competitors out there in the usage-based insurance market, and we see that they're building their portfolio, their loss experience off of maybe 40,000 crashes. The newer folks coming into the market building building a little bit of a, a pie wedge for themselves. We're getting that per month just in the state of Texas alone. So it's big data. It's it's a lot of valuable information that has been frankly like in filing cabinets and saved folders on people's desktops in departments of transportation. It really just takes some knowledge, insight, and ability to get it all together, organize it in a way that can be usable particularly for us, that's for telemetry-enabled auto, auto insurance carriers, personal and commercial lines. So for us, we will take the de-identified location of drivers, pair it to the roadway network, and feed it back to the carrier so they can start to make actionable choices about individuals that they insure or want to insure. So there's a, quite a bit of processing that goes on between Nancy's desktop and, and our end user's experience. And that's where kind of the Ometry secret sauce is. Has there been enough experience with Ometry so far to share what kind of findings and impact you've had with your customers so far? Yeah, I mean, it's wild and we're really inspired by the reality that every day we come to work, we help to actually prevent people from being involved in car crashes and we probably save lives like that would otherwise have been victims of car crashes, which is the leading cause of death of 25 to 34 year olds is accidents, predominantly car crashes. So if I think about my own life, I think, wow, this is really important for me and my family. You know, I know you're a young guy too with a young family, maybe putting a, a baby in the back seat for the first time to learn that stat is a little terrifying. You start to worry like, oh my God, are the roads really as safe as I've given them? You know, I haven't really given them much thought, but now I will double click on that. So yeah, we think that, you know, when we measure our own self you know, worth and worthiness of what we do based on that sort of impact that we bring back to society. But I'll say, I'll share a few things very tangibly that I think we measure internally as well. So the first thing we look at is disproportionate impact. Like where are people overpriced that frankly probably don't deserve the price that they get? People that live in risky zip codes, let's just like cut through the shit, redlined neighborhoods, right? pay upwards of 70% on average more for their auto insurance than somebody living in a white upper middle class neighborhood. And I think that's fundamentally wrong, but as a statistician, also wildly inaccurate. Like there are really worthy people that live in poor neighborhoods with bad FICO credit scores that frankly are great drivers. So there's got to be a better way. And I think using statistics, using some of the new data streams that old traditional insurance carriers frankly haven't had access to, or the technological sophistication to manipulate. I think that's giving folks like Ometry an edge, really a 
sort of wedge in the marketplace for us to come in and both be supportive of and maybe you know launch our own products that we can sell to to the benefit of the insurance industry yeah so i i think you've referred to it as something like not all miles are created equally correct yeah that's right so if you think about your own experience sort of everybody if you you know, anyone I've ever had a conversation with from investor to potential customer to podcast host, we all know a road in our neighborhood that sucks. Like for me, it's exit 13, route nine, Connecticut. If anybody is ever there, try not to be right. It was the exit that you enter the highway from, from my high school growing up in Connecticut. And it turns out it's the most dangerous road in all of Connecticut. And I think back and I'm like, man, if my mother only knew that every day I was driving on the worst possible road. And then on top of that, like I had some, you know, stupid high school boy driving me to school on top of it. Like, oh my God, what are we doing? Right. And what is the state of Connecticut doing allowing this? They know, right. They have the data. They don't have the capital to fix the problem. So it persists. So we try to take that information that's like implicit to everyone's knowledge, quantify it so that we can do that same math and say, yeah, exit 13, you don't want to be there. But hey, also exit two is same situation, right? We're able to draw direct comparisons to places that you may know and then places where your brain might have a bit harder time processing information. You may just not know that it's, it is very unsafe. So we take that information, we start to look at, okay, you and your wife start your journey at the same place, but you go different directions. Are you on exit 13? Is she not, right? Are you commuting into downtown Manhattan? Are you commuting to upstate New York, right? Two very different directionalities, but also two very different risk exposures. And right now you've got this big old group of people that says that live in your zip code that all get the same weighting criteria regardless of where they travel. Then, so that's cool, right? Like the same 10 miles not created equal, you're disproportionately exposed. Then I start to get, it starts to get even more powerful because you're a speeder right? But you're a speeder, but you go to upstate New York. You're not driving in downtown Manhattan or you're in the middle of the desert, like headed out to Arizona from Texas, right? Like go ahead. You bought a sports car to go 110, like open it up, man. What are you going to hit? Like nothing. There's just nothing there. Right. And there's no, there's no history of crashes. It's a straight line road. Like I think that there's a real opportunity to to essentially contextualize people's behaviors. So, you know, there's no greater friction in a marriage I've ever seen than one spouse who's a hard breaker and who's driving up their insurance costs. It is like the biggest fight over dinner. Like how many of us have had this, right? And then you start to ask questions like, well, how important is hard breaking? Like maybe that's a good thing. I didn't hit something like a hard break. I stopped in time, right? And so you start to just have these awful arguments over like how the insurance industry is policing us as customers rather than supporting us and identifying good journeys. So I think there's just an incredible different lens through which we can look at risk instead of, you know, the traditional criteria that have always worked because they've worked. There's also new data sources and new smart ways of thinking about, you know, how much money should we collect from you to ensure that if something does go wrong in the pool of risk that we brought together, that we can afford to pay those bills out 
but without doing so by taxing some people more so than they deserve and more so than others who are similarly, you know, likely to have a crash. You bring up a good point in that, you know, as, as an insurance company trying to put together a risk pool, right? You don't want what they refer to as adverse selection, right? You don't want to have something to where you're going to move aside the really good drivers in favor of, you know, riskier drivers. So it mm-hmm. seems like this type of data in, in the the driver's hands could help in that that risk selection, right? To make sure that, you know, you're, you're insuring the drivers who have somewhat less risky miles to help subsidize the ones who just can't avoid some of the riskier roads. Sure, sure. I actually think, so if I were to take a step back, but then double click on that concept, right? I think a lot of where we got to today is a consequence of this race to the bottom on automobile insurance pricing that Geico said you could get 15% off and you could, no, you don't get 15% off every year just because you're buying auto insurance. Your price you may get an initial discount, but on renewal, oftentimes your price goes up. This is some of the explanation behind why Roots, for example, which is a big auto insurance new carrier in the auto insurance space, why their loss ratio is really volatile, there's no clear downward trajectory, and their churn is garbage. It's like 60% in an industry that hovers around like 88 to 90%, right? So I worry that actually we need to actually have a fundamental reset on the value proposition that we have with our customers. It's not about giving you a discount. It's about pricing you accurately and in a way that you understand. So you as a customer know that you're buying just enough insurance for what you need and also that it will be there for you in the time of need. There's this like mistrust today built into the relationship that I don't think is like necessarily the equivalent of selling insurance, that there's actually better ways to do it, but we've all been like driven down to the bottom on price. So I think a carrier that's, you know, going to come to market and say to customers, you know what, we're slightly priced underneath what you would expect. It's sort of like the Warby Parker approach, right? When Warby Parker started, I'm wearing Warby Parkers. So and me too. You too. Right? <laughs> well, why did we buy Warby Parkers, right? Like VisionWorks was always there and they have like Michael Kors and Calvin Klein and they have all these big fancy partnerships. Well, the minute Warby Parker came into the, into the game, they said, look, we did the math. We figured out we could make these cheaper. We took out the parts that were expensive and we we know that this is how much it costs to make glasses and surprise, surprise, it's cheaper for you. So come, you know, buy your Warbies. They're good enough. They look good. They're there for you. If they break, we'll fix them. They're not cheap, right? What did that do? That immediately made Michael Kors glasses and vision works smell like cheap perfume, right? What was the last time you walked into a vision works or bought a pair of glasses out of bit? You know what I mean? Yeah. No offense vision works out there you know maybe they have the <laughs> customers i don't want to get a lot a lawsuit smacked against me but <laughs> i think insurance is ready for that player it's the warby parker of glasses that are going to just actually resonate with customers and build trust and sell a product that's decent but priced accurately i think that's the needle that could be thread i think so too 
So going back to the, the data that, that you talked about, the, the data you're gathering on the, the crashes and, and kind of ranking and, and really codifying the risk on a specific road, yeah. you're working with insurance carriers to get that data in their hands. How do I, as an insured of maybe a, a company that you're working with, how do I get access to that to really impact my day-to-day? That's absolutely right. So today... There are a number of partners on the commercial side that are using this to help inform their driver routes, think about driver coaching, retraining, targeting on commercial business. Consumers are fickle people, right? Like Chipotle had a couple foodborne illness outbreaks. I still roll those dice. I'm like, they're still delicious. Same here. (laughs) No, like I can't help it. And I think drivers are going to have the same sort of sentiment around like, You can't force someone to do something, but you can offer some suggestions and you can offer incentives. So we're looking at actually building core functions and capabilities to do things like, hey, we notice typically a driver will have like three routes on average. They just drive on repeat for the most part, right? Like home to work, work to school, school to grocery store, whatever it may be we can start to offer suggestions. Hey, you know, instead of sending your daughter to high school every day on route nine, exit 13, take exit 12. It's going to, it's not going to be a very big difference in terms of time or distance, but Hey, it'll keep her safer. And if we can see that there are some people who are willing to change their behaviors, who are willing to actually improve their driving, maybe that also includes things like consolidating down the number of days that you're on the road or not driving during specific rush hours where we expect there to be crashes on the routes that you drive, right? Like don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time, essentially. But once we observe folks who are changing their behaviors, well, that's another really good signal. It's sort of like Google started to mine your behaviors about what you're searching for and how you're searching for it. Well, I have a strong belief that people that are willing to change their routes to avoid traffic crashes, actually, that's a great signal for somebody who's taking active approaches to risk management, who wants to be an active participant in reducing their own crashes. Like, those are the customers you better believe I'm gonna fight like hell to retain, right? Somebody who's gonna set it and forget it, okay, like more power to you, we're monitoring your crashes, we're making sure that your exposure is in line with the thresholds that we consider appropriate for the people we wanna insure, but like set it and forget it, go right ahead. But I think there's a lot to be had with this data at scale. Ometry is building that out over time, but we'll see what sort of new and interesting byproducts that can come from, you know, observing claims and watching them mature with time and seeing really how our data can inform in advance of crashes rather than just being there to do like claims analytics on the back end after things have gone wrong. Carriers have a lot of data. It's very plentiful, but mm-hmm. some lack some organization around it. Have you yeah. seen an improvement on that in, in the year since? Yeah. You know, when we first started out, we would get into conversations about like we built an API to be able to, you know, connect directly and, and not exchange any personally identifiable information. Like we had thought through all of the logistics of the technical side and we would get to a point in a conversation typically far too long in, in my opinion, meeting two, meeting three at the very beginning, people would say, our data is not even in the cloud. We're like, oh my God. Okay. So it's on a cobalt server and back office. 
Like, am I sitting on top of it? Like literally <laughs> sometimes it's in the basement of these buildings, like massive server warehouses. And you're just like, what? Like, how, how do you not realize the literal gold mine that sits, that you're sitting on top of? Like, data is the new oil. I fucking hate that saying, but like in this case, it's like literally true that they just need to tap into the own, their own data that they've had. And I can't tell you why or how to motivate them. I've tried, but you know, if you can't beat them, join them. It's just start to help them be able to understand what is knowable from information that they may or may not have access to. And frankly, for any intertech entering the market, don't build, build a business model that requires a high level of technical sophistication from your customers because especially the smaller to mid-sized carriers, which are probably going to be your early adopters of any new technology, they're just not there. So try to find like partners and other means of maybe, you know, you have the tech built out, but you have a less sophisticated proof of concept that folks can wrap their brains around in a small sort of way. Has it improved? No, like it's the entrepreneur's job to figure out how to go up around through, you know, Kool-Aid man style fence, right? Like, you just have to find a way to make the way the industry is work and figure out you like the startup is the malleable part to the equation right the insurance industry is shaped ugly and it's all craggly you got to figure hundreds out hundreds of years old you know those are some deep deep roots <laughs> exactly like i think it's my responsibility to figure out the silly putty that fits into that crack exactly and adjust because Otherwise, you're going to be waiting for a long time. <laughs> yeah, long. I can. I can only imagine. You know, I've uh, a lot of the carriers that that I've have contacts with. You know, especially the older ones. It's it's a problem that we all know, and it's it, it, frankly, it's just really expensive for them to try and take. You know, let's say 80, 90, 100 years of of data. And it's like, how do we, how do we ma- migrate this in an efficient manner? So yeah, like, like you said, trying to just work with it, I think is probably going to be more, more beneficial in the long run. Work with it or go around it. Right. So my question is, okay, like, yeah, Travelers has 20 years, 30 years, whatever, hundred years, like give them whatever hundred years worth of claims information on their own customers stored in a database that they can't access or that they otherwise have difficulty querying dynamically. Cool. How valuable is that? Like how strategic is that advantage? To be quite honest, like we give big carriers a lot of credit that perhaps like new modern methodologies could subvert the way things always have been done. So I think about hearkening back to how many data records we're getting we can predict where car crashes are likely to happen with high levels of statistical significance. That's a real strategic advantage. If you're talking, you know, if you're an insurance carrier, that sort of information automatically, no matter what size you are, puts you above, actually leapfrogs you above these carriers with hundreds of years worth of experience. So I'm, I'm like, I don't see how, I don't think about it necessarily as an, as a, impossible hill to climb because there are plenty of people who will tell you it's an impossible hill to climb 
But when you start climbing it and you as a technologist and someone with an understanding of data and data systems and with like even a basic sense of Python, you find cheats. Like you're like, oh, there's an elevator over here to the left. Like I don't have to take this stairs, right? Like <laughs> you figure it out. And I think that's that's where the innovation from within insurance carriers, it will never come from within because there's too many constructs that mm -hmm like gird their system, right? It's like having scaffolding on the outside of a building. You can't then decide to remove the bottom rung of the scaffold. Whereas a startup or a newer insurtech player has the ability to design it correctly by observing the mistakes that were built structurally in by incumbents or others that came before them and just start from the ground up building something that's sustainable and scalable. I think that's gonna be what disrupts the insurance industry. I have to agree. The constructs are there. It's the biggest ship. It's not agile and for better or for worse. You can weather a lot, but it's really tough to steer. Yeah. And you think about it from like a coding perspective, right? Like how many times have we all written a bit of code that we're like, fuck, if I went back to the first line, I could make this code like a lot more efficient. But like sometimes it's just, you make this mental balance of like, I am just going to bandaid something onto this because I don't think it needs to be perfect and like time and this and that. I hate like criminalizing or demonizing the insurance industry in some way for making bad choices. We all make bad choices for reasons of expediency and, and other things. So I have empathy for the position that they're in. And then to think that they built like a $256 billion industry on top of that. I'm like, yeah, I see how that's hard to change. Like yeah. I had a couple bill on the line I probably would be like, you know, I'm just going to patch it until it really breaks. And the problem is, is that it's starting to break, right? Like people are recognizing that the rating criteria, like no offense to my actuarial friends, but if you're going to just apply a weighting factor of like 1.2 to my age, oh my God, I'm like, you only go down to one decimal. Like why wouldn't you want to go to more significant digits? And I know your audience is somewhat technical, so that may resonate with them, but like that to me was like, what? Like coming in from the outside one point, okay. Like, I think that's starting to change, right? There's far too many data scientists coming into insurance that are like, yeah, that is like the most basic possible thing you could do. Let's make this a little bit more complicated and a lot more accurate. And then I think secondarily you're getting people that have an interest in making sure that insurance is working for everyone. Like it's racist a little bit, just like everything that was born in the fifties, right? Like it was born of a time that had different cultural values. And today I think that when people start to realize that the zip code that you're born into or that you live in or your FICO credit score contributes somewhat like 80% to your, to the price of your policy, that's just wrong. And like far too many people don't know that that is a problem, but when they do, it's like, what? That's messed up. And they feel strongly about fixing it. So I think that there's a lot of sea change that we're seeing right now that might meaningfully give us an opportunity to revisit some of the stuff that was born in the fifties and ask important questions about like why we're doing what we're doing and whether we should continue doing it. What's the research show on Factors like zip code, FICO score, contributing to crashes and claims. Yeah. 
So they're definitely like a FICO credit score. Any staunch defender of a FICO credit score would tell you that like it does actually contribute to actuarial lift. It's an important factor in the auto rating criteria. But where they start to get squirmy is like, why? And anybody who builds a model, like this is like statistics 101, right? Like you got to know what you're putting into the model and have at least a theory of the case before you put it into the model, because there's a lot of things that are correlated, but not causal or, or have no even theoretical causal link. And I think a lot of people dance around and squirm through answers around like, well, this is a good signal for your financial health and therefore your responsibility and therefore to me, I'd just rather say, look, you drive on a, a road that's likely to have traffic crashes. That's why your price is high is because you're in a place that somebody could hit you or you might go off the road. Like, that's why I'm pricing you that way. It's a less... Right. So it seems like, I mean, when you risk score a road, that's something as me as a driver, I have control over, right? Mm -hmm. My FICO score, there's a lot of stuff that happens way before I'm born that I have no control over as far as where I end up. Right. And so to your point, maybe there's some correlation there, but I mean, I don't have control over that. Why? I, I think I see where you're going there. It's not, I should be priced on the way the, the things that I control, right. The, the, the behaviors that I have, not necessarily, you know, things that I don't have as much control over. Yeah, and I think about COVID-19 is really going to have an impact, deep impact on people's financial credit history. Did you become less safe of a driver because of COVID-19? Like, no, that was completely outside of your control. You may have lost your job. You may have missed loan payments. You may be high use of credit, all things that would contribute to a really poor financial performance. So all of these discounts that carriers are being quite generous with now, like let's not all be surprised when rates go up 10 to 15% on our next bill. It's really just a stopgap because they haven't changed the underrating criteria in the meantime to say, oh, well, like you're driving less, so you're a better driver. They're just giving you the 15% back to keep you as a customer to avoid you churning. They're, they don't actually think your risk profile changed but when you come out of covid you're going to look like a worse risk it's going to become more expensive to buy auto insurance again that's you know ethically to me suspicious at least and it's why what you know when we get back to our team that question you asked about team like those are important issues to the people i work with co-founders son of dominican immigrants CTO is a Moroccan immigrant himself. Like to get car insurance for themselves and their families is a really expensive experience that I don't think a lot of people are really aware of how it dampens people's upward economic mobility. If you can't afford car insurance, you can't afford a car, you can't get to a job, you can't bring your kids to childcare, access food, live in sustainable places that are environmentally not like killing you from the water or the air. Like so many things downstream if we thought about the consequences of the way that we priced we wouldn't sleep at night if we like really came to terms and grips with the way things have always been done and so i don't know it keeps us motivated it keeps us at least thinking we're onto something that we should be doing and is the right thing to be doing 
Carrie Ann, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can people go to learn more about your work? Absolutely. LinkedIn is the best place to reach out to me. My company is called Ometry, so ometry.com uh, is another place. And our dog is also saying hello. So thank you for All right. Thanks for coming on the show and we'll talk soon. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks. Yeah. That does it for this edition of Insurance Requirements. If you haven't already, check out our website, howyouinsurethat.com, where you'll find episode archives as well as our blog where we tackle different insurance topics from today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, pass it along to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Andrew Carell. Thank you.